Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes two experts talking about academic and industry insights. In today's podcast, we have Angela Spatharu, Senior Partner and Leader, EMEA Healthcare and Life Science, IBM Consulting Board Member and Emeritus Governor of the London School of Economics, Health Supervisory Board Member of the European Institute of Innovation and Technology, and Litsa Kranias, HANA Professor and Director of Cardiovascular Biology, Distinguished University Research Professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Systems Physiology at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Uh, hello, Angela. My name is Lisa Krenius, and I am the HANA Professor. This is an endowed chair I have at the University of Cincinnati and also a distinguished research professor here and director of cardiovascular biology. I actually came to the United States when I was 18, right after high school, and I did my undergraduate studies at the University of Chicago. Uh, They accepted me as an experiment of a foreign student with an amazing scholarship that enabled me to go back to Greece every summer. And then I did my PhD work in the same city, but at Northwestern University. And I chose to go into molecular biology that was an emerging field at that time. My PhD was on the replication of viruses and their mutants, and that was in the forefront of molecular biology at that time. And afterwards, I decided to pursue also molecular biology questions, but in the mammalian system for my postdoctoral work. And I worked on the RNA polymerases and their regulation at Northwestern University Medical Center now. I moved from the Evanston campus to the Medical Center downtown where I stayed for three years. And during the third year of my postdoc, I became an instructor at Northwestern and started teaching graduate students in parallel with my research. But during the third year, we moved to Cincinnati because my husband was recruited by the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. And I followed as a young mother with two kids. But soon after we got here, I was able to get a faculty position in the Department of Pharmacology and Cell Biophysics. And I have stayed in this department for over 40 years. This is my home here. And I've stayed here because it is a very strong cardiovascular center with lots of grants, teamwork, and collaborations in this area. What about you, Angela? Thank you, Lisa. I'm not even going to try to match any of that. I'm in full awe and admiration. Uh, my career is a little bit different, although it does include a PhD. 
Um, I joined IBM a couple of years ago. I lead IBM Consulting's healthcare and life sciences team for Europe, Middle East and Africa, which is the second largest region for us uh, outside North America. So in that sense, I have some very interesting experiences and insights, I think, by now on the cross-section of technology, data analytics and healthcare at a very critical time for our health systems. Uh, before that, I was with McKinsey & Company as a partner in healthcare, in consulting still, initially in the UK, where I work with the English national health system, but across Europe as well. But then I also spent a few years as part of the leadership for North America. Uh, so I was, in fact, for a period based out of Mexico City, which means that I worked in the US with Medicaid, Medicare programs, and I led the advanced analytics team of McKinsey at the time for chronic disease patient data. But I also worked across LATAM as head of healthcare for LATAM, which is a very interesting stretch if you think about it from Mexico all the way down to Chile and everything in between. So I think I got a very good comparative view of health systems in that period. And uh, I had the opportunity to collaborate in those years with big multilaterals on important global health issues, such as uh, the European Union or the World Health Organization, uh, but also um, the nonprofit sector, so Gates Foundation and others. Uh, before that, I, well, I, I joined McKinsey coming straight out of a PhD uh, in, uh, at Cambridge. Uh, on uh, political economy specifically, I was actually looking at the internationalization patterns in the Russian oil sector in the early 90s, coming out of the uh, fall of the uh, Soviet Union and the implications this had for foreign policy. And it was a, um, um, a relief, but also a sorrow to see in the last year that a lot of the things I saw and wrote about at that point, uh, which was 2000 in, uh, at the time I did my PhD, were still the same. Some of the themes were still there and unaddressed. So that was a very interesting uh, reflection point for me. And before that, I studied law, actually, at the University of Athens. Law is an undergraduate degree in Greece. Uh, so I had this interesting trajectory from law into international relations at Cambridge, political economy at Cambridge, then coming into McKinsey to work in public sector topics, landing in healthcare, getting real passion around health system reform, doing uh, technology data analytics work in the process of that, and then landing in IBM in a very interesting role. So pretty diverse trajectory. Uh, apart from that, I'm uh, similar to you. I think I'm, I'm solidly Greek. Uh, both parents Greek. I grew up in Athens. Uh, I still love Athens as my hometown, and I visit as much as I can. But I also, I guess, had an interesting trajectory whereby my family from my mom's side came from Alexandria in Egypt. So I was always a, a child of diaspora, if you want, that had returned into Greece and, you know, accustomed to people speaking different languages and coming from different places. Then we had one generation in Greece and now I'm out again. So you could you could argue there's a bit of a theme there. But uh, enough about me. <laughs> Thank you very much uh, for your very, very interesting introduction. Uh, and I think one of the things we wanted to touch on, if I get this right, in the next few minutes was as, as women in different levels of seniority, let's say, in academia, business, and so forth, our experiences with leadership. Um, and that's a very broad topic. It's like, where do you start? But um, very practically, as I said, I am now in a role in a major multinational firm in technology in charge of an industry sector. Uh, so that gives me an oversight across eight, nine core markets, and frankly, anything over 50 different countries. Um, that is a very demanding role. It means you need to have a very good ability to a deep dive into the detail on specific topics of increasing technical nature, but also having sort of a top level perspective of senior leaders and decision makers in the sector, public and private. 
Um, and it's, it's interesting to see for me how this environment uh, has changed over the last 20 plus years that I've been in this sector. Uh, because I think it's fair to say when I started, uh, there were very few women in, in, in any organization I worked with, either McKinsey for 19 years that I was there or at the time IBM. But now we have very, very good representation of, of women in senior leadership roles. And, and I think my reflection was, on the one hand, you need to want to step into positions of leadership to some level. But on the other hand, you need to be in an environment also that encourages and nurtures the talent. Um, and although I think it's important to nurture every talent uh, from any background, uh, I, I did find that as a woman having a McKinsey at the time and then IBM uh, deep dive to see what could be barriers holding people back from specific leadership roles and opportunities over the years, and, and how could these barriers be specifically addressed, not, not in generic ways, that that was a very interesting topic in my development. So as a very good example here, similar to you, I have two children. And what McKinsey did at the time very well was post-maternity uh, leave um, coaching, which was coming back to when are you at your best as a professional? What are the key things that you can build on as you come back? And also what are things that may hold you back? And how does this change or not change for better or worse? Because there are also very positive things coming back uh, with, a, with a young family. So I think these were some very important parts of my trajectory, let's say, as a leader. And, and I think the learnings I had in my earlier roles with McKinsey and the coaching I received, both formal in terms of an actual coach, but also informal from male and female colleagues all the way through my career, I think prepared me for increasingly more senior and demanded leadership roles in McKinsey at first, where I, I, I led different teams, sort of geographic and factional uh, across the 19 years, and then in IBM for the role I have now. I think I've, I've said more than enough. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience. That is so impressive, Angela. Congratulations at all fronts. Um, you touched on the mentorship role as we developed. And I also want to say that when I started my career, I had absolutely no role models. And it was very difficult as my mentors were mainly men, but they were extremely supportive for my development. And with their leadership and guidance and serving as my example, I walked through several steps, both in Cincinnati and outside. I became the chair of my department of pharmacology and cell biophysics, the director of cardiovascular biology, and also the co-director of the cardiovascular center of excellence here. And those were all positions of leadership that allowed you to incorporate uh, young women and uh, have discussions at all fronts and function not only as a leader, but a mother for their further development. Another uh, very soft part in my heart is that I have been a professor and consultant researcher of the molecular cardiology part area in the foundation of biomedical research of the Academy of Athens since 2002. And we kind of started that group at IIBM and moved it forward. And the group now works hand in hand with my lab in Cincinnati. And they're so productive and the interactions and the joy that you get out of that is really very, very fulfilling. 
So in Cincinnati, besides my department, I chaired many committees, um, the graduate program committee, the appointment and reappointment, the department organization, um, the medical school committee on committees overall, the sabbatical and academic leave committees, research governance of the medical center, academic appeals, and the committee on mission and organization of basic science departments that was a lot of fun as we were dealing with the question of having one basic science department or keeping the department separately. It was a lot of fun sharing these and getting uh, information from around the country and the committee members going through long discussions with the dean of the medical school, but the outcome was to keep the departments as they are separate entities because they function better. And then at the national level, I have served on committees with the National Institutes of Health and the American Heart Association. I was a chair of a study section, the congestive contractility and congestive heart failure, and also the Mouse Newton Resource Center for NIH, and the American Heart, the Nominating Committee, the Basic Research Committee, uh, the Distinguished Scientist Committee, and the Councils of the International Society of Heart Research. And all these helped me to grow at various levels not only as a leader, but also as a person. And now, Angela, I want to ask you, how do you ensure diversity and inclusion, including equal pay, career development opportunities? And what is your style in demonstrating appreciation for everyone's voice and contribution? Um, thank you, Lisa. Um, I mean, to begin with, I think I have been fortunate uh, here in the UK in the environments I have worked in uh, because both uh, companies have spent biggest part of my professional career had very strong policies around diversity and inclusion and, as you say, equal pay and career development opportunities. And so the policies were there. The things that I tried to do personally were two things. First of all, understand uh, sometimes the implicit bias we all have. Uh, as we apply these processes and try to understand where that bias materializes, what it means in practice and how to take it out of the equation. And that was a, a very important thing because I was in many evaluation committees uh, where we, in McKinsey in particular, we would evaluate people typically twice a year for the junior staff. And we would go through in a very, very balanced and calibrated way at looking at everybody. But still, you would find that there were some biases, in, even sometimes in some of the ways people would ask a question about a female or male candidate, or, or in, you know, in, in some cases related to people with different backgrounds. So understanding these biases, I think, was, uh, was quite important. And then the other thing was looking systematically at the trajectory of people coming from different backgrounds, whether it's uh, gender or other uh, aspects of diversity and inclusion, and looking at how they were progressing through the different stages. So were they promoted at the same rate? Were they promoted at the same speed? Were they given similar opportunities? If not, what was the reason? So going after every one of these cases and trying to really understand them, and admittedly, it's something that generic processes don't pick up easily. It does take personalized uh, approach, personalized attention and coaching. 
Uh, and I think this is something that in some companies is very intrinsic to the culture because, for example, in consulting, you emphasize on growing leaders within your organization and then you emphasize in every single case in a very 360 way. But I think that was an important part of my learning on diversity and inclusion. Uh, and then I was also involved in uh, the leadership initiatives for women in both companies, uh, also in initiatives around women in STEM. Um, and in a personal capacity outside my work environment, I had the opportunity to be on the board of uh, the, the London School of Economics now, and also the European Union's uh, EIT Health, the European Institute for Innovation and Technology in Health. And again, these are organizations with very strong track record around the diversity and inclusion agenda. And to be honest, I feel I learned a lot just by observing how these processes worked in, in practice. Now, in terms of uh, appreciation of everyone's voice and contribution, um, I learned early, I guess, because when I joined in my first role, I had a very nice male colleague who sat me down and said, you have all these great ideas, uh, but you're almost too polite to survive in our environment. And I said, what do you mean by that? How can you possibly be too polite? And he said, you never speak up unless someone actually addresses you the speech and asks you specifically, Angela, what do you think? You do not speak up, which I thought was a good thing. I thought I was only, you know, speaking when invited on when I had something so burning to say that I really had to break someone else's flow. But apparently this wasn't how it works. So I learned at that particular point that actually to make the most of people like me when I joined, I was admittedly much shyer and introverted coming straight out of a humanities PhD into the world of business, um, that you had to ask. You have to ask, you have to include, you have to always um, check the room and make sure that you've heard in equal ways across the room. And it's not, I mean, it's not even gender. It is other people who naturally might have something good to say, but are much more introverted and do not participate. And for me, it became a point of richness of the discussion and richness of the views and contributions. So it's not something I would do because I have to, in quotation marks, but more something that I would do because I think it adds value to the organizations and the clients I serve through them. So and impressive, Angela. Very, very impressive. <laughs> and how about yourself, Lita? Any, any quick thoughts on the on that agenda? Yeah, exactly what you said. Our university works very hard on all these issues, and they're all implemented here from the top down. So in my team, we always ask everyone's opinion. We have a long discussion before reaching any decision and before making them very, very carefully, everybody's voice is heard exactly the way you talked about that. Uh, and Lisa, in, in all those years of your career, what changes have you seen? I mean, I can trace back some in my 20 and a bit, <laughs> but you know, your experience is much, much richer. What, what have you seen work? Uh, have we progressed? Yes, yes, I have been uh, having a long career and I have seen some very positive changes that I'm so proud of. Women these days have a lot more support and career development guidance through relevant workshops, scientific societies, compared to the days that I was growing up as a professional. Today, the number of women scientists and faculty in academia is at least equal to men. Women are now in leadership positions, they're highly effective, and I actually believe that women are treated equal to men in all respects in academia, including pay, teaching, 
various opportunities, service, and all the fronts that we're dealing with. Uh, women serve as chairs now of departments, committees. They take on administrative roles, which was not an obvious thing in the past. They lead major organizations like your case and scientific meetings. And overall, I feel that in earlier days, women used to be mainly the recipients of decisions that were made by men, but now they are participating in these decisions. But importantly, men have also changed and the way they perceive the women and their capabilities and talents have, have, has changed a lot. So with all these achievements and moving forward, I now believe that the younger women have very strong role models. As I said earlier, I had no model as I was growing up. I would go to a scientific meeting and have room service all the time. Because when I tried to talk to my male colleagues, they were not very friendly or open. So one of my tasks as I was growing up professionally was to make my male colleagues aware and sensitive of the feelings of the young female scientists and encourage me, my colleagues to incorporate the young women into their circles and make them feel welcome. Now, Angela, I have another question for you. What was the positive impact from your interaction with main leaders? And what did you particularly gain from women leaders during your career development? Thank you. That's a very important question. Um, well, I mean, given the environments I have worked in in the last 20 years, I was surrounded mostly by male leaders for a big part of my younger career, if you want. Uh, and and uh, goes without saying, I would not have progressed or even developed my level of aspiration uh, without them. So it was very interesting how they would uh, I meet mean, so many of them. In particular, you know, you hear all these stories. I have three daughters and I want to make sure the workplace is a better place for them in 20 years time. Uh, I felt adopted by quite a few people who would, uh, you know, very uh, graciously and generously give me their advice and their uh, solicited or unsolicited feedback. I got a lot of feedback in my early years about how to have impact, how to make a pre my presence felt, how to take over a meeting in a way that, uh, you know, male colleagues felt I should just to make my voice heard. So I got a lot of very, very good feedback. But also not just coaching, I also got um, mentorship, yes, but also sponsorship. Sponsorship as in people creating real opportunities that would work for me at different times. And at times in a very thoughtful way, for example, coming back from maternity leave, I wasn't going to travel extensively outside and leaving my young baby behind. Uh, so people went out of their way for a period to create the right opportunities within London. So for example, I didn't have to travel or introduce me to specific clients and specific situations that I could have impact that really fitted my profile. So I think that systematic approach of reaching out and helping any young person, to be honest, any more junior person, helping them develop and coach them is very rewarding. I mean, I do a lot of it now for male and female colleagues, but I'm very grateful to the colleagues who set these examples for me early on and for the care that they demonstrated in, in making that happen. And, and I have to say some of their approach to, to, to business was also very refreshing. 
I, I did come a little bit from an environment where, you know, the typical stereotype of being a good girl, right? And, and since that, you had to tread very carefully to be very careful how you project what you want or what you even think is the right and rational and data-based thing to do in a given situation. And my male colleagues were more, more like, go ahead, go ahead. If there is reaction, you can deal with it later, but you should just do what you think. So I was very much encouraged to develop as a leader in more ways than one. And then the female leaders, um, th that was also fascinating. Again, because you could see different models and there were some women who were just very polite. They would become very successful by being very smiley and very helpful and very, very polite. And it was a path and it might've been my path, but I actually saw some others who were very much matter-of-factly and quite often coming from a very strong science background with lots of data and go like, no, but this is this, this is that. And, and really putting people in their place when they were out of line and providing an example that, you know, you could have different leadership styles and they could work for different people or for the same person in different environments. And that was OK. Um, I have to say within that, there is two women I, I was extraordinarily inspired by. One was a senior partner, McKinsey, who had six children. I kid you not. Uh, I have no idea how. Uh, she had a very supportive husband who was an academic. So I think it was a combination of him writing books um, on, on, on sabbatical while having, of course, a fully set up house with a nanny and six children. But I was very inspired. I mean, I only got to two, but I think this woman was amazing, is amazing. And the second one is uh, another lady I work with who had uh, been the head of strategy for the national health system in the UK, then joined McKinsey for a period and is now back in the NHS and who was the most inspiring female leader I've met in terms of my work experience. Uh, I mean, she would walk into a room and own the room. And that was a very interesting model for me as well. So yes, lots of uh, interesting examples for, for, from both. And uh, now comes back to um, then what did you what did we face when, when developing our leadership profile in that and, and things that you hear. And one of the things uh, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been looking at is sometimes, you know, people say, okay, stereotyping the way male men or women work or you know hearing things like working as a man or something equivalent and i guess my question is is this something you ever had to face or, or heard in your uh, in your career oh actually i never heard that during my career on the opposite i had uh, several colleagues praising me for the hard work i was doing and overall i believe that women are strong they're dedicated, but they're also highly organized and multitasking. So in a sense, I think that they work harder than a man, but I have never heard that specific phrase. Also, I believe that women know how to pick their battles and know how to respect the environment around them. So in that respect, they make a nurturing and grateful environment as they move forward in their careers. Any ideas about that specific issue, Angela? Have you heard that phrase at all? No, I was about to say, um, I, I know this, you know, people ask sometimes, but I personally haven't heard it. And looking back, I think if anything, there was always an implicit assumption that you would have to work as hard or harder than a man to get to the same place. So yeah. that's that's an interesting an interesting reflection. And I mean, looking <laughs> back at the you know young women that I I you know I I, I work with, I I try to coach and support at different times. They were all extraordinary. Uh, the way they work, the caliber of people. So it was it was more of a question 
raising the aspiration at the right level and then supported them at critical decision times in their lives, which through maternity in many cases can be, um, you know, can be more acute for women. Shall I ask you or both of us share the question um, with the topics of discussion among people these days and specifically after COVID-19 prioritizes to life over work? What are your experience with this as a female leader of both men and women? And what is your perception overall about life? Yes, thank you. I think you're right, Lisa, that um, uh, with COVID, uh, a lot of these discussions uh, became much more clear, but actually I think they had preceded COVID. So if I look back over these 20 years, when I started working, there was more a sense that, you know, you had to work as much as you needed to in order to succeed. While I think in the last few years and before COVID, it was more uh, work has to fit into my life aspirations and my life aspirations are broader. And, and that included a better uh, work-life balance for both male and female colleagues. Now, one thing I have to say here is um, the fact that it is not gender related, but it is for both male and female colleagues, I think makes it much stronger and much more impactful. Uh, one of the things I, no I remember noticing when I started taking my children to school in the morning and then coming to work was that um, I um, tended to be very apologetic and explaining to my teams and having three backup plans to be able to do that. While in fact, it was even before working hours. And I realized after a couple of years that a lot of male colleagues uh, who were in a similar situation were doing exactly the same without talking about it. So they had a much more practical, matter-of-factly, things have to fit into my life approach to life from which I learned. And I think they bring that very strongly into the workplace. But it is true. I think a lot of the talent now in technology, as an example, and we have a lot of gaps in talent. So talent is really sought after in technology. Uh, people are looking at this very seriously. You know, why would I not have work-life balance? Uh, what would happen as a result? Or, you know, they would do it if they were inspired for a particular program of work that delivers ex exceptional impact. So I, I have the fortune, good fortune of working in public sector services and health. And I know this is something that inspires a lot of young people and they will go above and beyond because they believe in that mission, but they wouldn't do it as a matter of course, just to hit uh, specific metrics. So that's an interesting change. Yeah, I also agree with everything you've said and the guilt of feeling coming to work when, when you're at work, you're guilty. When you're at home, you're guilty. And I believe that there is overall a fine balance that needs to be established. And this is really different for the different people and the different circumstances. Um, as academicians, we know there are many sacrifices and compromises that we have to make through our career development, and we all choose the best way to move forward with the best effort and time, again, depending on a specific circumstance every time that we face an issue. But overall, I think that women have very strong organizational skills. They work hard, they're dedicated, and they also make sure they have an amazing, strong and supportive team around them. And I actually feel that we're all very fulfilled and well-balanced at the end of the day, because we love what we are doing during the day. Uh, the scientific research is a passion for all of us. 
And the family also is something that fulfills us. So there is this balance that comes, although we are tired and exhausted, it will feel okay at the end of the day. But in all fairness, one needs a partner that supports them at all fronts. So, Angela, I wanted to ask you now, what do we need to do so that the misbalances between genders in leadership is not a matter of discussion for years to come? What are your thoughts along these lines? Um, look, I think there is a there's a couple of things we need to be looking at. I think any uh, successful HR professional in any large organization, public or private, should now be looking at the slates that they have for candidates for promotion and more or less looking at is that representative of the talent they have in the organization. I'm not suggesting setting targets necessarily, but you know, if you have a particular role and you have, for example, it's happened to me, eight candidates and it's like one female and, and seven male, then it makes you think, uh, have I really looked wide enough? Have I really looked at different profiles and different people with different skills? And in some cases, maybe appropriate in others not. So I think, uh, first of all, looking at the promotion slates into leadership positions in a balanced way is quite important. The second thing for me is uh, also supporting people with coaching at critical decision times in their life and helping them understand that they, they don't need to and cannot be everything to everybody. So um, when I was uh, back from maternity, uh, a coach sat me down and asked me what kind of parent I wanted to be. And I said, of course, the best one, the best I can be. And he actually forced me to think of different parenting models, some of which may be around being always available and being the one cooking every meal. And others might be more around coaching and, and, and supporting and, and shaping the character in a different way. And clearly, I landed more towards the second because I didn't have what it took to do the first. So, you know, actually providing that kind of coaching and helping people navigate these changes, I think, is quite important. And I know we're close to time now. Is it time for our last question, Lisa? Yeah. So the last question was, where would you like to have dinner if you could with anybody in the world, alive or not? What place would you choose? What kind of dishes? What music would you like to have been playing around? Your favorite songs? What do you think, Angela? <laughs> so that got me thinking, and it got me thinking about my own biases, because the first three names that came to my mind were all men. And then I took a real step back, and I thought about it, and I discovered that uh, I was somewhere between Christine Lagarde and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I landed on Ruth Bader Ginsburg because I find her absolutely fascinating as the first Jewish woman on the U.S. Supreme Court and the second woman on the U.S. Supreme Court and her stance on issues around human rights and liberal um, policies, which are, are very close to my heart. So I think I would find it absolutely fascinating to spend uh, and to have dinner with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Place, now that's an easy one. My favorite restaurant in the whole world, I haven't been in 15 years, but it is uh, called Chevre d'Or, and it's in Aise, in a fortified village in the south of France, somewhere between um, Nice and Monaco from memory. Uh, French food, there, therefore. And the right background, thinking of Ruth and her background, was jazz for me. And I was thinking, at, in the beginning, I just thought 1950s jazz, but then I thought, okay, we need actually a song. So I would go for a love song. I would go for All of Me by Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, that's wonderful. In my case, there is somebody who has a very soft spot in my heart. And this is Dr. Arnold K. 
Katz, one of the fathers of cardiology that I happened to meet when I was a young faculty member. Not only he was an amazing physician and he wrote many textbooks that we're still using around, but he was a strong scientist and a great philosopher. He started every single one of his talks with some slides and a story from Greek mythology. And then he related that to the heart condition or the heart disease that he was going to talk about today. At that time, I'm sorry. <laughs> he was also the greatest mentor of all. He worried about the young scientists, their future. We had endless discussions and he gave me so much confidence to move forward and prove myself. And Arnie loved Greece. So I would love to be with him at the Greek beach, having Greek food that I know he also loved. And I would like to hear the song, What a Wonderful World. This is what Arnie Getz would remind me today. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white The bright blessed day The dark sacred night And I think to myself What a wonderful world why not take all of me baby can't you see i'm no good without you take my lips i'll never use them take my arms i want to lose them your goodbye left me with eyes that cry Tell me how can I go on, dear, without you? You took the part that what was my heart. So why not take all of me? This was a great meeting today. Great to talk to you and to meet you through Zoom. What an amazing achievement and positions that you have accomplished and such a rich life up to now. Thank you. Lisa, thank you very much. It's been really inspiring both to read about your background beforehand, I have to do my, my homework, but also to hear you talk in such an amazing way about the different stages and the things you learned and the people you met, extremely inspiring. Um, Really, really grateful and, and look forward to hopefully meeting you in person one of these days. And thank you, Konstantinos and Aristia, for bringing us together this afternoon. A huge thank you to Angela Spatharu and Litsa Kranias for this podcast, Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence. Mm -hmm.